So this evening, I have the privilege of trying to respond to your questions. Uh, Very varied questions. And some of them are kind of grouped together, uh, and they'll get responded to in that way. So, beginning with, uh, are there any specific instructions about technical aspects of breathing from where it should be initiated, etc.? Actually, um, actually, I started with not that question in terms of my response, in terms of making sense of the order of the questions. So we'll go to that one in a moment. Uh, the question that I started with, uh, which seemed to make the most sense to me, is are there any specific instructions as to how one should go about settling in the initial phases of a sit? Well, there are specific instructions uh, about how one should um, settle into the initial phases of a sit. And I did offer quite a, uh, a bunch of specific uh, instructions uh, regarding this on the first morning of the retreat, and those were recorded. Um, so I would suggest that you might listen to those again. Um, they will be available on uh, days that I am not giving a, a Dhamma talk. I'll briefly, uh, this evening, uh, review those um, for you, not in the detail that they were offered uh, with the instruction sit the first morning. So we begin by uh, sitting down, or standing, maybe, uh, and bringing attention into the body, and relaxing, being present, and the mind being as bright and as clear as is available at that time. And first directing the attention to the posture in a simple way, not complex. Noticing the posture, the whole body sense of sitting, noticing points of contact, touch points where the chair or the ground uh, and the bottom are touching, feet, legs are touching, hands and legs touching, hands touching each other. So sitting, whole body sense, and touch points. So settling into the body, basically. Connecting and settling into the body. And then I went on, and I'm not going to go into this in detail, but bringing attention into the back of the body and the posture. And there's a detailed uh, description of that as a guidance um, in the Uh, instructions that were um, recorded. And then bringing around the attention into the round in the front of the body. And again, all the way from the belly on up, bit by bit, uh, noticing and relaxing, noticing and relaxing, noticing and relaxing, with specific instructions in each area to some degree. All the way up into the face and up into the head. 
So basically those instructions are a kind of a body scan process. There are a number of different ways that people do body scans, have been taught and uh, practice body scans. Um, it is a really good way to settle in at the beginning of a sit. And you can do it every time briefly if that's helpful for you. Not spend a lot of time necessarily as, as practice goes on, but you can do quick body scans from feet to head, head to feet, um, moving through the body with a mindful attention. And it brings us into presence in the body. Um, another uh, aspect of helping, uh, helping us to settle in uh, once we've settled into the body um, is to maybe uh, begin a sit. For some of you, I know that uh, uh, there may be some of you doing this, uh, with a little bit of metta practice. That's also very helpful in settling in to a practice period. So it could be anywhere from just a couple of moments of metta for yourself to five or ten minutes at the beginning of a sit uh, with metta for yourself in terms of connecting in a uh, heartful, kind, and um, present moment uh, experience within your own body, heart, and mind in a, in a wholesome and kind way which sets a good tone for uh, going on with practice. So that's another aspect of helping, uh, helping to settle in. So the question that I read first but that I didn't start with, uh, specific instructions regarding a technical aspects of breathing, uh, from where should breath be initiated? Um, there actually are no specific instructions in this way uh, about technical aspects of breathing. I mean, as long as we're alive, we're breathing, <laughs> right? So we just breathe. <laughs> we breathe naturally. We're not trying to manipulate or control our breath, not trying to breathe in any particular way, not trying to breathe in any special way. We're breathing. And so we, for most of us, unless we have to breathe through our mouth for various reasons, breath does enter the body through the nostrils. That's where it comes in. It doesn't come in through the toes or the fingers or the top of the head. It enters through these apertures right here or through the larger one right here. But mostly it's through the nose unless, for various reasons, we have to breathe through our mouth. Um, we just let it happen because it's happening. And... Uh, we give it a mindful attention. Mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of breathing. And we, with the anapanasati practice, we pay attention to it where it enters the body, at the area, the spot, where it enters the body. And again, for most of us, uh, it's through the nostrils. Um, 
and and not far away is the mouth if we have to breathe through the mouth for various reasons. Um, so again, it's and I've said this many times, but it's entering in this area through these apertures in the body, and we pay attention to it wherever it's most clearly available for us to experience it. Not it's not a thought of the breath. We're not thinking about a breath. We're not even thinking in-breath, out-breath. We're connecting directly with the experience. So the sensorial experience of the breath. And uh, for each one of us, it is maybe in a slightly different area within this area, within the nose, nostrils, tip of the nose, uh, that this space of skin between the mouth and the nose, along the edge of the upper lip, where we'll feel it most directly. And that will also change to some degree within this small area of the body that will change as practice goes along. Very likely it'll change to some degree where where we notice it, uh, where we connect with it, with those sensations. Um, This question wasn't asked, but it's related. The, the response I'm going to offer is related. Why do we pay attention here for samatha practice, for anapanasati practice? Well, as I said, this is uh, obviously this is where the breath enters the body, so it makes sense to start there. Um, but also, um, the sensorial experience in uh, in this area is actually quite subtle right from the get-go. Uh, and so consequently, because it's already quite subtle immediately, uh, it asks us to immediately begin to focus with some degree of concentration uh, in order to sense it, to feel it, to know it immediately. Um, breath sensations in uh, other parts of the body just for instance, in the abdominal area, in the belly, uh, in the chest area, there are grosser sensations. And I don't mean gross by being disgusting, not that kind of gross. They're just larger, bigger, grosser sensations. Um, initially, easier to pay attention to. So it, we have to be somewhat concentrated, but not as focused as we do in this area. Um, so it's quite a uh, natural, organic place to uh, work with developing the focusing power, the concentration power of the mind. <clears throat> okay, let's see. Um... The next uh, question that I uh, thought was uh, appropriate in the order of of the questions, um, uh, could you describe the relationship to the Anapana uh, spot a little bit more? Uh, And then the question, or the writing goes on, can we see it as a uh, a strip, or uh, rather than a point, uh, 
Does it get smaller over time? Should we try to receive it uh, as as, mu- as much information? Can't see. <laughs> Should we try to receive as much information uh, as is available in that area, or focus on one aspect? Okay, a bunch of questions, kind of in a group. Um, So our relationship to the sensorial experiences uh, of the breath at the Anapana spot develops over time, the relationship. It's important that we have a relaxed interest in what's going on. And it's important that we let go of... um, any preconceived ideas uh, uh, that we might have about the experience, about how we're supposed to do it, how it's supposed to feel, what we're supposed to notice, uh, what's supposed to happen or what's not supposed to happen. So there's what is sometimes called beginner's mind is asked for. We, we have interest, open-hearted open-minded interest on, in relationship to what's going on. With the, and if we noticed we have some kind of preconceived ideas tightening around, around the experience, and maybe it's not meeting our experience, isn't meeting those ideas, recognize it, let it be. Just let it be. And just give it your best, open-minded, open-hearted, attention. And you'll see whatever you see, however it is. Uh, um, and that will change in its own ways, we could say. So we have to continue to be really interested, relaxed, and open-hearted and open-minded. That's a tremendous training in and of itself, you know, about anything, let alone <laughs> this practice. And it trains us about everything, really. It really does make a difference overall in life. Um, The aspect about seeing it as a strip, seeing the area, I'm gathering is what it's meant, as a strip or as a point or a dot. Um, A visual image uh, of the Anapana spot uh, is actually not helpful. Uh, uh, it's actually a concept. It's conceptual. And it's, it keeps us from the immediacy of the experience itself. So if you tend to conceptualize and create an image in your mind of this spot or this spot or this area or this area, wherever it is, um, recognize it's a concept. It's a picture in the mind that is of no use, really. So let it be, again. Recognize it. And you may have to work with it a bunch of times if you have a tendency to create concepts about things, you know, quite quickly, and then think that that's, you know, important. We're not working... We're working towards 
immediate direct experience and letting go of concepts. And this is a very simple uh, bit of that training. So, so no strips, no dots, <laughs> no sparkles, no whatever it might be, you know, stars. You could have all kinds of interesting concepts about where you're placing your, your attention and make some nice picture here of what it might think it should look like or what it looks like in your mind. Let it be. What we're really interested in is the direct sensorial experience and how it is now and now and now and now and now because it'll not be the same all the time. And also the, uh, I may have already said this in some way, but the actual area where we're uh, receiving uh, and sensing the sensations uh, of the breath, of the in and the out breath, um, the area itself will change, likely. Maybe not, but maybe yes, it will, uh, to some degree, as we go along. Uh, If you're on the very edges of the nostrils now, uh, tomorrow or next week, it might be more here or maybe just slightly inside the edges. I mean, it'll, it'll shift and vary. Uh, that's fine. Don't get tight and rigid about staying at this spot right here or this spot right here, wherever it might be. Just be present and really interested in how it's showing up. And of course, as, as I have said, I mean, the, the, the sensations will change over time. There's absolutely no doubt about that. They will change over time, as many of you have experienced. Um, and most likely, quite likely, uh, they will get less distinct and less sharp. Now, at the very first they're probably not very clear or very sharp just because mindfulness isn't very clear and sharp and because your attention hasn't developed, your focused attention hasn't, isn't very well developed yet of being really present in a sustaining way here. So the sensations are kind of wishy-washy like the attention is. So there is a, a, a time when the, the clarity and maybe a certain kind of sharpness with the sensations is apparent, is being known. But as concentration deepens and as it develops, uh, the, the, the subtlety uh, uh, begins to also develop. And so the breath becomes more and more and more subtle. And so the sensations that are included, you know, in the experience of breath, are more and more and more subtle. So people sometimes get uh, concerned and sometimes even upset (laughs) because the sensations aren't getting stronger and stronger and sharper and sharper and clearer and clearer as practice develops. They feel like, well, I'm getting more concentrated. but, But that's not how it works. Subtlety of focus, subtlety of attention, concentration, depth. Uh, there's a, 
a whole process that's going on of relaxation, of calm, as some of you are experiencing to varying degrees, eventually tranquility, and it gets subtler and subtler and subtler, and the breath goes right along with that development of subtlety. So everything is subtle and subtler and subtler. It's important, really important, that we stay mindful through all of this. It's just totally necessary in this practice. There's a distinction between being mindful and strong investigation. Anapanasati practice, samatha practice, does not ask for a a strong, in-depth, investigative process. Investigation is light, we could say. We're not trying to discern every little minute detail of what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, in this case sensorially in our breath, uh, in the nostril area. So we notice, we're very mindful, and we notice it. And this is uh, maybe not very clear, maybe, maybe slightly misleading, but we notice it just as it is. We're not trying to suss out every little innuendo, every little detail, every little change. And it's not superficial. What we're doing is not superficial. It's not uh, vipassana practice. It's not um, investigative, uh, intense investigative mindfulness practice. So you have to find your your way in this if you've done a lot of um, practice uh, rooted in investigation, mindful investigation, you have to find your way. You have to back off a little bit. You find a balance in there. So we just simply and mindfully um, notice whatever it is that we're feeling, breath by breath by breath. And it's also important. Um, Not to compare, I'll just make a kind of story, a little bit of a story. Not to compare what you felt yesterday, what you felt experientially yesterday, with what you're feeling experientially today. Don't compare. If you notice the comparing mind coming up, you're thinking, number one, there's a lot of thinking going on, and there's a lot of striving in some way. And a supposed to mind, the supposed to mind. Today is today. This moment is this moment. What are you feeling right now? Just that. That's enough. That's an incredible practice to to really uh, take in and engage in. Just now, right now. Comparing is deadly. Actually, it's a terrible thing. It really ties us in a knot.
Also be careful about expectations. I mentioned this just a little bit. Um, expecting how you're supposed to feel, what you're supposed to feel, uh, or what you should feel later, next sit, tonight, tomorrow. I mean, you've missed your moment of presence in this life. Tomorrow's hasn't happened yet. Tonight hasn't happened yet. And yesterday's gone. So it's now, right now. I mean, this is across the board with our practice, no matter what we're practicing. But it's so obvious and distinctly asked for with the Anapanasati practice. So it's, it's really helpful. Um, the other thing is, uh, we're not uh, focusing on... I'll say this in a certain way. We're not focusing on the changing nature of what we're experiencing, even though it's changing. I hope that makes sense. In Vipassana practice, we, we at certain points in uh, insight-based uh, Vipassana practice, we look for the changing nature. We specifically give our attention to the changing nature of things. So we're practicing anicca, or beginning to develop a deeper and deeper uh, connection with uh, and understanding of the changing nature, the anicca nature of everything. In this, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not going for the insight. We notice, because we notice the direct experience of what's going on, it's different. The last breath in, in was different than the... I mean, this one's how it is, and it's different than it was. It's always changing. But it's not, we're not focusing on that changing nature. We're just present with what is. So I hope that, that makes sense. Um, if you start focusing on the changing nature your concentration will not develop to the depth that it has the possibility of developing uh, uh, around in just being present with things as they are in the immediacy of the experience, uh, breath by breath in this case, or whatever it is, if if we're moving maybe uh, towards some of the other aspects, we're still focusing on breath, but there may be some other things beginning to develop, certain states of mind, etc. But uh, we're just being present in the immediacy of the occurrence of how it is. And we're, and the other thing to mention, I guess I might say this in a, a little bit more, but we're not thinking about it either, which is a really uh, difficult thing for a lot of people. We love to think about what we're experiencing, don't we? <laughs> in, the med- in the middle of it, you know, like start thinking about it, evaluating it, judging it, commenting on it, lauding ourselves about it, beating ourselves up about it, etc. When you notice that kind of thinking, just notice it. Hello? Goodbye. I'm just here now. 
there's a uh, okay I think that about covers that let's see okay uh, there's a, a, a tremendous uh, kind of intimacy uh, with the experience of the breath that develops as the practice unfolds. And however it's happening, there's just this incredible uh, intimacy that develops, very close presence in relationship to the experience of breath. Simple, the simple breath. I mean, there couldn't be anything simpler in our life. It's also our life, our breath, you know, we're, we only breathe if we're alive, so. Uh, although it's so simple, and in a certain sense seemingly inconsequential, it's pretty consequential. <laughs> and so we begin to just get very close to it, very intimate with it, take a, a, a great interest in it. Some people say it's so boring, I mean, we're, it's just breath, you know. Well, maybe it's boring sometimes, you know. But it's worthwhile to take an interest in because it's such a, I mean, philosophically, I don't like to get too philosophical about these things, but it's such a primary aspect of being alive. So connect with it. Take an interest in it. And it does develop naturally if we keep doing the practice in that it becomes at some point and it becomes uh, our all-encompassing interest, involvement, and experience at some point for some period of time. Nothing else matters. It's just... And not because you've pushed stuff away, it's just because it's developed that way. It becomes that, that um, full and complete in terms of our, our experience and our interest. Okay, so... Uh, the next question, um, <clears throat> how does practice, how does one practice the union of uh, samatha and vipassana? Can they be practiced effectively at the same time? What is your take on this discussion? Should one cultivate effective sham- samatha, I say samatha, not shamatha, that's Sanskrit and Pali, uh, samatha first, uh, and then it says pros and cons underneath. Yeah. So samatha, just uh, to be clear here, uh, the word shamatha or samatha translates as calm or calm abiding, abiding in calm. That's what that means, that word means. It is an aspect of concentration practice. It is an aspect of the development of concentration. 
the two practices, concentration, samatha, or anapanasati practice, mindfulness of breathing is the actual practice. One of the fruits of it is calm or samatha, and a bunch of other fruits as well. Um, and vipassana practice. Uh, there's actually no vipassana practice, no insight meditation without some degree of concentration. And of course, mindfulness is essential. You cannot practice insight or mindfulness, I mean, uh, or a vipassana without some degree of concentration. It's impossible. And particularly the uh, kanika samadhi, the moment-to-moment kind of concentration. And so that needs to be developed. And um, there's no wise, wholesome concentration uh, possible, no, no development possible uh, with, without mindfulness. There has to be mindfulness involved. The calmness of samatha uh, is brought about by the focusing of the attention on one object. So whether your intention is to practice, to learn, to move towards insight, vipassana practice, or to uh, develop a deeper and uh, uh, more profound uh, concentration practice, it's the necessary way to develop that is focusing on one object. So most, uh, well, pretty much every uh, Buddhist teacher, uh, if they're teaching uh, vipassana, or and again in, in uh, Sanskrit the word is they pronounce it vipassana. Um, you start off with the breath as an, as your primary usually or some object, but most often it's breath, uh, as your attention, your object of attention. Why? So that you can gather in the wild mind to some degree of focus, capacity to focus the attention. So one object is of attention is necessary. Um, uh, sometimes it's in, in the abdominal area particularly in uh, uh, certain schools of, uh, of vipassana practice. The focus of attention is in the, in the belly, in the abdominal area. Uh, sometimes it's in the chest. Sometimes it's whole body in and out breathing. But it's always a focus of attention uh, and, until the attention starts to gather, the mind starts to gather in, and, uh, has the ability to whatever degree, to be able to focus. Because if you're, if you're uh, honest, <laughs> which we try to be uh, with our practice, our minds are wild. They're all over the place. They're, they're here and there and here and there and here and there. Uh, and sometimes when people sit down to begin practice, especially at the beginning, uh, if they're just beginning to learn practice, and they start paying attention to their breath, and a thought comes, and 
Then they're back for one breath, and then another thought comes. And I'll meet with them, and they'll say, you know, it's, it's amazing. I'm thinking way more than I usually do. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think like this all the time. Well, that's not true. They just didn't notice. So now they're noticing, and you may, each of you may have experienced that at times. You start to notice, oh, this mind is just... And, uh, but you'd never really noticed it before because you weren't paying much attention. So when you start paying attention to what your mind's doing, you notice, oh, the mind thinks a lot. Okay, let's see. The thing, uh, in terms of the combination, the question about samatha and vipassana, uh, just a brief, I mean, there's a lot that could be said about this, but trying to be succinct. Um, with the concentration practice, the anapanasati practice, which, as I said, is the actual practice, and the samatha or shamatha is one of the results of the practice, uh, the calm and tranquility that comes. Um, if we're practicing that, we don't go other places. The mind, we don't take the mind to other. We do notice other aspects of our experience, but we don't purposefully uh, and uh, concertedly give attention, say, to particular sensations in the body. Uh, we don't look for uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta experiences. We don't uh, uh, necessarily uh, uh, purposefully focus on uh, various states of mind. Um, we, our primary object of attention is, at least for quite a while, is the breath, because that's the way of developing a deeper and deeper uh, concentrated mind. Other things do come in and we notice them, but we're not giving them a primary attention. I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. Um, with with insight practice or vipassana practice, once there's some degree of capacity to focus the attention, we may use the breath as a primary object for a long time, but we go to lots of other aspects of our human experience with mindful attention on purpose. I mean, we really take our attention there and uh, we learn from that. The whole point is learning, so we learn from that. What we're learning with the focused samatha, uh, calm abiding, uh, eventually, and then ongoing from that, uh, the concentration development, we're also learning constantly. That's what we're doing. We're learning. But we're learning a certain uh, aspect of practice, developing and learning. The Buddha, as I mentioned, I think, in the first talk, the Buddha talked about um, mindfulness of breathing practice, concentration practice, 
What's the purpose of it? The mind is developed, is what he said. We're developing the mind. It becomes very strong and clear and focused, which then is useful in lots of ways, but uh, it's useful to, to, do, to go on to inside practice, in terms of practice. Um, and just a little, uh, little bit here, personal. Um, my first 25 years or so of practice, uh, at least 25 years, uh, was oriented in Vipassana practice. Uh, and primarily in the Burmese uh, Mahasi tradition where uh, breath in the belly, breath in the abdominal area, is a primary object of uh, mindful attention and uh, investigative attention, strong investigative attention. And of course it goes with that practice. Uh, We go to lots of other, eventually all of our aspects of our human experience, but the breath in the belly is a very primary uh, place of attention. And so there's a concentration that develops, <clears throat> but it's not, a, we're looking to be momentary concentration so that we can go from this to this to this to this to this to this. Um, and so over all those years of practice, um, I developed really quite a, a strong and uh, quite a clear mindfulness-based practice. When uh, concentration practice uh, became more easily accessible uh, here in the U.S., which it wasn't, it really wasn't available, there was a lot of misunderstanding about deep concentration practice, and, and some, in some of that misunderstanding there was a lot of fear. Um, but when it became um, more available, uh, I really took to it. Um, I'd been wanting... To, to learn more, and I really took to it because uh, even as a child, uh, I had a very natural inclination and accessibility for um, strong and deep concentration. Only I didn't really know what that was, what what was going on in me. It just was part of my life. And, uh, And then, of course, as I started practicing, I started learning a little bit more about what that was but not very much because it wasn't offered in any real in-depth way. So when it became available, I just went for it, which was very helpful to understand uh, a lot about what had been going on in my life since I was this little kid, and, uh, and then to really learn how to work with it and develop it, which was very wonderful and exciting and interesting. Um, So because of my own path uh, uh, to this uh, and all those, you know, over 25 years of uh, Vipassana practice and uh, incredible uh, uh, learning and development with that, uh, and what I've learned uh, uh, through uh, observing uh, others uh, involved in concentration practice, um, before I started teaching, actually, but observing others and helping uh, uh, Pao uh at one point in a, a in a part of a retreat that I long, long retreat that I was sitting with him, but working with people that were having problems or having 
difficulties, we could say. I won't go into it, but uh, so I was one of the people that was um, asked to do that. And seeing what, why, kind of, what was going on with them and why. And mostly the why was because they didn't have very strong mindfulness. That mindfulness was lacking. And so they would get caught and stuck and spin out in stuff that goes through all of our minds. A lot of emotional states, uh, aversions and attachments and identifications because they weren't mindful. They didn't know have a strong base of mindfulness. So by the time I saw them, they were they just had to be somehow taken care of because they had really spun out quite a bit. Um, so I, uh, I feel quite strongly that uh, uh, it's best for students who decide to enter into a depth of learning with concentration uh, that they have uh, done a lot of mindfulness practice at least enough that they have uh, a fair base of mindfulness to work with. Mindfulness is really our best protection, bar none. It's our best protection in relationship to everything, everything in life. And it must be part of our um, development of concentration. So I... uh, this is the, some of you, I'm sure know this, some of you, or know of it, maybe some of you have read some of it. This is the Vasudhi Maga, uh, The Path of Purification. That's a big book. <laughs> it's very, very interesting for those that are ready to take a look at it. Um, very detailed about the process of practice and the fruits of practice. And uh, there's a section I found today that I want, just very short little section about mindfulness. And this is uh, in the chapter, the concentration uh, uh, chapter in this book. Strong, and I'll just read it (coughs) uh, with a few uh, additions, actually. (laughs) Strong mindfulness is needed in all instances. For mindfulness protects the mind from lapsing into agitation through blind faith, too much energy, and misunderstanding, which favor agitation. Now, some of the language is a little archaic, but I'm just going to read it the way it is. Which favor agitation. And from lapsing into idleness through concentration without enough energy, which favors idleness. So it is as desirable in all instances as a seasoning of salt in all sauces, as a prime minister in all the king's business. (laughs) Hence it is said, and mindfulness has been called universal by the Blessed One, the Buddha, that's how he's referred to in here. Uh, For what reason? Because the mind has mindfulness as its refuge. And mindfulness is manifested as protection. And there's no exertion and restraint of the mind without mindfulness. So a little advertisement from the Buddha and from the Vasudhimaga for mindfulness. (laughs) 
And another um, very brief question, um, which I'm going to answer fairly briefly. Uh, how does one work with um, feelings or mo- emotions in concentration practice, or does one? So just briefly uh, in relationship to emotional states that come up uh, as we practice, which they do, as I'm sure each of you know, uh, in our Anapanasati practice. We need to be very skillful on, in how we uh, work with these states. Sometimes it's easy, uh, appropriate, and very skillful to uh, just let uh, an emotional state pass right through and then on out. That does happen. I'm sure each of you has experienced that at times. It does happen. It's not such a strong and uh, sticky state. It's noticed, it's felt, and it goes. And sometimes emotional states are very sticky. And when this is our experience, we need to apply our mindfulness and varying degrees of investigative skills in relationship to these states in order to be able to uh, move through them and allow them to move through our heart and mind. So, in a sense, we take the skills that we have with mindfulness and investigation that we've learned in insight-based practice or mindfulness-based insight practice and apply them when it's appropriate to our emotional states. And actually tomorrow evening I will be offering uh, a talk on the transformation and relinquishment of afflictive afflictive states of mind, which, so I don't want to go into it so much right now. Um, So, the next question, um, who or what, if not the mind, declares an intention, reinforces that intention? Intention, intention is a thought. Right? It's a thought. Simple. It's a skillful thought, if it's a wholesome intention. It's not an order. It's not something like ordering yourself to do something. That's not intention. But it's, we could say it's an intended direction for your practice, for your mind, for your heart and mind. So we make an intention, it's a thought, uh, in a wise, a skillful, and a very kind way. And we do this from the mind mind and heart, heart heart-mind, with sincerity, with kindness, and with wisdom. And very important, without greed. So you're not making an intention from a greedy place. I want this to happen. I have to have this happen. I want this to happen now, or next week, or tonight, or... There's not... If you notice that, then you're 
not really doing using intention in a wise way. So take a few breaths, relax, let go of the intention for a while, and then at some point try it again. If we are making our uh, offering ourselves, we could say, and I like the word offering, we're offering ourselves uh, an intention, a skillful thought. Um, from a, a wise and kind place. Uh, we just then let it, simply let the process unfold as we practice uh, with our utmost sincerity and care and kindness. And we might offer ourselves the intention every once in a while but not with impatience and not with harshness and not with a tight, kind of contracted, uh, have-to sort of uh, state of mind. I know in the guided sit last night, I I think that was last night, or whenever it was, <laughs> night or two ago, um, I suggested that you re- remind yourself. It's like a reminder, an intention. Remind yourself again at, an, at the appropriate time when it's when it's needed, uh, uh, to gently offer yourself the intention. What is your intention? Well, there can be various intentions, but to be with the breath here at the Anapanasati—a simple intention. But not that I have to get there. I have to be there. I have to stay there. It's not that. That's not intention. Not the way we use intention. It can be an inspiration and a reminder if it's done wisely. Most of us can get quite easily uh, lost and sidetracked along the way of our practice. It can happen again and again and again. I think we're actually quite easily distracted. It's habitual. In many, many ways, we're habitually easily distracted. So if you think, just think for a moment uh, about what your distractions of choice are. You don't have to say them out loud, just keep them to yourself. (laughs) But, you know, we've got a few, you know. Mm -hmm. Right? They're just my minds. There you go. They really aren't yours, but they're habitual. That's what I'm pointing at. They're habitual. We think they're ours. Or we think that they make us happy, even. That's something, isn't it? Uh-huh. I think for many, many people, thinking is one of our primary distractions. I think for many people, thinking is the most seductive human experience. People have argued with me about that, but I think if you take it, take a look. In relationship to our practice, it's not so much what we're thinking about, because you know the mind can think about anything. It's just the habitual seduction of getting caught up in a thought, whatever it's about, over and over and over and over again. It's pretty seductive. 
So what are we doing? We're training the mind, the heart, towards what we intuitively know is beneficial and worthwhile. And this is one of the questions. Why is the mind so reluctant to follow our instruction, our own intention and the instruction? And then the questioner goes on. It must know that a pleasurable state is accessible if it will just behave. (laughs) Well, minds are feisty and for the most part they don't behave very well at all. So they need to be trained. And, you know, the, the, a classical uh, metaphor that's used is they're like a, a puppy. You know, the wild mind, the puppy mind. It's, they're really, if you've ever had a puppy or been around a, a puppy, they're, they're just like our, our untrained minds. You know, it's a really good metaphor for it. So we're training the mind, the heart, to what we intuitively know is beneficial and worthwhile. But that doesn't mean that if we offer ourselves the intention once or twice that the the puppy mind will say, oh sure, okay, I'm right there. It doesn't work that way. Training takes a while. It entails actually recognizing and relinquishing our habitual distractions. And that's not so easy, over and over and over and over again, recognizing and relinquishing our habitual distractions, some of which we like a lot, we're habitually attracted to, and we're often quite attached to and identified with. So it's not so easy. Even though we intuitively know that what we're doing is really... uh, Uh, beneficial and worthwhile. That's why it's called practice. And practice makes perfect, right? Sometimes it takes a long time, though. (laughs) The Buddha talked um, about letting go of a minor happiness for a greater happiness. He said that many times. This is really a primary basis for moving along uh, with the unfolding of the fruits of our practice. So then, I knew this was going to be too long. I'll try to go quicker. Um, The next question, what is the state of Western knowledge about the neurophysiology of jhana states? I'm not able to answer that question. I'm sorry. Uh, I can't answer it from a scientific standpoint. Uh, I know that there have been uh, some studies uh, done uh, regarding uh, this uh, exploration, uh, uh, and br- you know, the brain mapped with little things on people's heads when they're concentrating and maybe going into jhana states, and I was invited to do a couple of these studies, and I, I wasn't able to timing-wise with my schedule and stuff, and I actually didn't really want to do them anyway. Uh, kind of thought, 
eh, you know, it's just experience and and I think there's value in it. I mean, science needs to prove what the Buddha learned and what his disciples learned then and are learning now in our uh, scientific culture, which is nothing wrong with that. They want to prove it by saying this is the brain turns blue and the brain goes expands and contracts and turns green and red and blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's all right. But I can't tell you about it. I mean, you'd have to look it up on the web. I think it, you could probably find those studies uh, and the results of those studies uh, somewhere on the web if, you're, if you really want to know the, that way of looking at it. And it might be, I'm sure it's interesting. I've seen a few charts, but I'm not that interested, so I haven't really delved into it. Um, uh, what I can say... Uh, is, is from experience. Uh, uh, there are certainly, uh, most certainly, uh, uh, various parts of the brain that are affected by deep concentration. And you can, there's the potential, depending on the depth of your concentration and mindfulness, you can feel some of the movement of that and almost the chemical changes or fluidity changes that are going on. You can actually feel some of that. Um, uh, whether it's blue or green or red, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what that means, actually. But, <laughs> um, but things do happen, and uh, the heart is affected, the body is affected. Uh, and especially, or experientially, uh, in the midst of our practice, we directly feel some of the physiological and the neurological effects of the development of concentration uh, uh, as some of these manifestations are occurring. But we're not thinking about it, and we're not analyzing them uh, scientifically. We're just experiencing whatever we're experiencing in the immediacy of it. and, and it's, it's like that. Um, there's no linear cognitive understanding that's going on. There's just direct experience. Um, we don't think about it. Concentration practice helps to develop many, many wholesome and beautiful states. And, you know... Each of you, whether you're aware of it or not at this point, some of you are aware of it because you, you're, you're feeling it directly and bringing a mindful attention, uh, that it's happening. It's happening now, today, yesterday. It'll happen tomorrow. Uh, many wholesome and beautiful states of mind are developing. Um, and I will be giving a, a talk uh, a little bit down the line yet uh, uh, specifically about uh, these wholesome and beautiful states that are uh, developed uh, and growing and accessed uh, through our practice. And they inform our life. They inform us deeply all through our life. So... Okay. 
Okay, I think this is the last one. Last question. Okay. Um, how is insight achieved through jhanas? And okay, the first I'll just start with that. How is insight achieved through jhanas? I've already said that uh, concentration practice and the potential uh, uh, development and access of, uh, of deep concentration uh, jhana states uh, is not uh, an insight-based practice. We're not we're not going for the liberating insights. Um, uh, it's, it's not a direct insight practice. There's a tremendous amount of learning uh, on a lot of levels that comes through the, the development of concentration, but not in the form of uh, direct liberating insights. The practice of concentration and the access of jhana uh, in part, is a process of a profound letting go, an ongoing and profound letting go of many of the habitual ways that we attend to, that we think of, and habitually engage in our bodily and mental experience. So, as we slowly engage in the practice, with the receptivity and the relinquishment that's required of engaging in this practice, a deeper and deeper and deeper confidence and fearlessness unfolds, along with many, uh, with the many wholesome uh, and beautiful states of mind that are developed and occur and, develop, and are developed. Um, So it's, there's a great deal of uh, uh, development, wholesome and beautiful development uh, and understanding, but it's not the process of practice towards uh, the liberating insights. It's preparing us for that, we could say. And there's a lot of understanding that comes through this practice. Uh, All of this, um, and I'm just being pretty general at this point, but all of this uh, is required for a really true, liberating uh, vipassana insight practice to take place. And as I said, all of this development through the uh, concentration practice prepares, uh, provides our mind, provides our heart with a really profound understanding. And it's not an intellectual or cerebral understanding, but it's really a very direct experiential understanding that manifests in the way that we live and in the way that we relate to our life. Uh, As well, of course, as how we relate in and with our practice. And again, I want to. There's a little piece of the Vasudhi Maga here that I thought I would share with you. 
this is a, a very, well, it's a section about the benefits of developing concentration, and this is just a s- little small part, piece of it. Um, when ordinary, and again, the language is sometimes a, a little bit uh, archaic, but it's understandable, accessible. When ordinary people develop it, meaning concentration practice, when ordinary people develop it thinking, after emerging we shall exercise insight with concentrated consciousness. The development of absorption concentration, that's jhana, but even before that, the development of absorption concentration provides them with the benefit of insight by serving as the proximate cause for insight. So the proximate cause for the, particularly the liberating insights, not the psychological insights or lots of other insights that lead up to the liberating insights, but the liberating insights, the proximate cause is the development of concentration. And so too does access concentration. So access concentration is not absorbed concentration. Access, access concentration is uh, a very strong, I mentioned it the other day, is a very strong and deep concentration, but the mind is very malleable, very pliable. It can move from uh, one thing to another, to another, to another. So that's, that's what is really extremely helpful uh, for uh, vipassana practice, for insight practice. I'm talking about what I'm reading here. Okay, and so too does access concentration as a method of arriving at wide open conditions in crowded circumstances. So what does that mean? (laughs) Well, the crowded circumstances are the process of our existence in the round and round and round of rebirth, moment to moment to moment. Meaning, there's rebirth, moment to moment to moment to moment. This moment is born into the next moment, is born into the next moment. And it's on and on and on. So that's the crowded, uh, what are the crowded circumstances, the process of existence in the round and round of rebirths, moment to moment. It's a very cramped space, so to say. Uh, and it's crowded by a lot of craving and a lot of aversion. Around and around and over and over and over again. So this development of concentration, as they're talking about here in the Vasudhimaga, um, access concentration is a method of arriving at wide open, meaning a wide open, very pliable, malleable, focused attention in the midst of this round and round and round and round and round. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, uh, the next sentence here is, hence the Buddha, or the Blessed One, as he's called in the Visuddhimagga, uh, uh, bhikkhus, he's talking about monks, but any anybody, uh, develops concentration. A bhikkhu, or an ordinary person, is con- who is concentrated, understands correctly. 
said the Buddha. So there you go. That's what we're doing. <laughs> um, the last, I'm sorry it's a little over, over time, but I just want to attend to the last little bit of this. Um, uh, the last of this was, uh, what kind of insights are gained in the eighth jhana? <laughs> well, I was pretty surprised by that question. Like, why the eighth jhana? <laughs> I mean, that's a long ways away, right? <laughs> but anyway, somebody did ask that. Uh-huh. So, and some of you probably have no idea what the eighth jhana is. What is it anyway? I'm going to go very quickly. There are four rupa jhanas, or four material jhanas, the first four jhanas, and they're rooted in the breath and rooted in the body. They can also be rooted in metta. At some point or other, they could be rooted, uh, uh, directed in the concentrated uh, experiences of the four elements that all bodily experience is based on. They could be rooted, uh, the four material jhanas or rupa jhanas, could also be rooted in the internal perception of the, what are called casinas, earth, water, air, and fire, their internal visual images that relate to earth, water, air, and fire, and at some point possibly also rooted in certain color casinas that are in the mind, uh, there are actually ten possibilities, I'm not going to go over them all, that the four rupa jhanas, or, uh, material jhanas, can develop out of. But the first is anapanasati, and that has to be mastered, so to say, learned, and is really the most important. Then there are four arupa jhanas, immaterial jhanas. They are not rooted in the body. The first is uh, uh, boundless space. The second is boundless consciousness. The third is the base of nothingness. That's actually, that's four. Five, number five is boundless space. Number six is boundless consciousness. Number seven is the base of nothingness. And number eight, which this question was about, I guess, is uh, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Now, I'm not going to talk about those. (laughs) Because there's no point at this point. Um, And anyways, pardon me? There's nothing to perceive or not perceive about this. (laughs) Not right now, yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) One thing I can say is that each jhana starting from the first rupa jhana all the way up through the eighth jhana of the base of neither perception nor non-perception is developed one by one by one by first accessing and deeply absorbing into it uh, as it matures and being mindful in the process. And then the next jhana is accessed by relinquishing by letting go of the previous jhana, and this goes all the way through with each one, by letting go of the previous jhana consciously, very consciously, with an understanding that it's inferior, that it's crasser, that it's grosser, 
then the next jhana possibility, the next jhana state, that the next jhana is more refined than the previous one, thus more valuable, so to say. Uh, And so one relinquishes the previous one. And it's done very consciously. The mind is so uh, uh, developed by that point. We learn how to do this. It's a learning. It's a process. We don't just come upon the eighth jhana. It doesn't work that way. We think we might be coming upon it, but we're not really. This can be quite a challenging process. I mean, it's a lot. There's a lot of learning. It's it's definitely learnable, but it's a lot of learning. Um, the development and the relinquishment, the letting go, in this whole this whole development of concentration, it goes on through the whole development of concentration, even before uh, jhana is accessed. Uh, it's really a tremendous learning process, and I mentioned. A little bit about that. I mean, it, it really informs our life. It's very helpful. And not so easy as, as you're discovering, I think. The attainment of concentration and uh, the development of it, uh, and then the, may, the potential of the uh, development of jhana. Uh, develops the power of the mind. Our, our minds are very powerful, um, and that's what we're, we're, we're working, and as the, working with. And as the Buddha said, the mind is developed through this practice, the Anapanasati. And it, again, it's the proximate cause for insight to develop through Vipassana practice. So thank you for your questions. And even though it's kind of late, I think we should. Uh, I think it would be a, a, a good thing to chant the sharing of blessings after this, since we've been talking about the development of many blessings through our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.